Please turn in your Bibles to Judges chapter 17. Judges chapter 17. It's always a joy and a delight to be with you in this capacity. I'm very thankful for all the effort that you all put into myself and to my wife and to my children. And now we're thankful to be able to carry this church's DNA onto other congregations and uh, be able to serve you, uh, not directly, uh, congregationally, but more indirectly through the Presbytery. And it's been a joy to uh, be able to come back and worship with you guys this last uh, few weeks, but likely this is probably the last week that we'll be coming consistently. Lord willing, we'll be closing on our house up in Marion, and so we'll be up there. But you will always be uh, in our prayers uh, as we continue to uh, pray for you, uh, as we have done so in the past. But please look at Judges chapter 17. Uh, many look at the book of Judges, and they look at Judges 17 through 21, the last few chapters of this book, as more of an appendix to the book itself. Because the earlier chapters focused more on individual judges as the Lord raises up these men, and in one particular case, uh, a woman, Deborah, to redeem his people. But when you look at Judges 17 through the end of the book, there's no judge mentioned. And so some commentators have then said, well, this is just simply an addition to the book, um, and it's an appendix to the book. It's maybe added information, but not so relevant to uh, the core of the book of Judges. And I think if we take that position, we really lose the whole meaning and purpose of the book of Judges itself. And there's reasons for that, and we'll get to that momentarily. But for now, please follow along with me as I read from God's holy inspired word, Judges 17, verse 1 through the end of the chapter. There was a man of the hill country of Ephraim whose name was Micah. And he said to his mother, The 1,100 pieces of silver that were taken from you, about which you uttered a curse, and also spoke it in my ears, behold, the silver is with me. I took it. And his mother said, Blessed be my son by the Lord. And he restored the 1,100 pieces of silver to his mother. And his mother said, I dedicate the silver to the Lord from my hand for my son to make a carved image and a metal image. Now therefore I will restore it to you. So when he restored the money to his mother, his mother took 200 pieces of silver and gave it to the silversmith who made it into a carved image and a metal image. And it was in the house of Micah. And the man Micah had a shrine, and he made an ephod and household gods and ordained one of his sons who became his priest. In those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes." Now there was a young man of Bethlehem and Judah, of the family of Judah, who was a Levite, and he sojourned there. And the man departed from the town of Bethlehem and Judah to sojourn where he could find a place. And as he journeyed, he came to the hill country of Ephraim, to the house of Micah. And Micah said to him, Where do you come from? And he said to him, I am a Levite of Bethlehem and Judah, and I am going to sojourn where I may find a place. And Micah said to him, Stay with me, and be to me a father and a priest. And I will give you ten pieces of silver a year, and a suit of clothes, and your living. And the Levite went in. And the Levite was content to dwell with the man, and the young man became to him like one of his sons. And Micah ordained the Levite, and the young man became his priest, and was in the house of Micah. Then Micah said, Now I know that the Lord will prosper me, because I have a Levite as a priest. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord remains forever. One of the things that I enjoy doing in my pastime, one of the things I like to do to relax is I enjoy cooking. 
I like the process of cooking. I like making food for people, enjoying a meal with friends and with family. I like taking a bunch of ingredients and then turning them into a delicious meal. I like to see the results of my work, that instant gratification of the effort that you put into something. This is something that I particularly enjoyed while I was at seminary where I didn't see the fruits of my labor working on papers, so cooking was, was a good way to scratch that itch. But I remember when I first started cooking, I was young, I was 12, thereabouts, and I had it in my mind that I was going to make breakfast for the whole family. And so I cracked open a cookbook, Betty Crocker's big red three-ring binder cookbook. Many of you perhaps have it. And I was making pancakes. But one of the things that I like to do when I cook is I like to cook from the heart. I don't necessarily like to follow a recipe. I'll be making something and I'll think, yeah, I don't want to add that. I'll add this instead. And sometimes it works out really, really well. And other times, my wife refuses to eat what I make. Well, I was making these pancakes for my family, and of course, if you've made pancakes, you know the recipe calls for a little bit of salt, a little bit of sugar, but I like my pancakes really sweet. So I decided that I would add like four times the amount of sugar to these pancakes. So I make these pancakes, and I prepare the meal, and I give it to my family, and I'm waiting with eager expectation to see how they respond to the first time that I made these pancakes. They took a bite, and they spit it out. So then I took a bite, and I too spit it out, because what I did was I replaced the salt and the sugar. They were unedible. And I took those pancakes, we threw them outside for the birds to eat, and they didn't even eat them. <laughs> I didn't follow the recipe. Well, as we look at this text, we see this man, Micah, deviating from God's word, deviating from what God has clearly laid out in his scriptures. Now, the law of God is not simply a recipe, but we do not have the freedom and the privilege to be able to uh, do things from the heart, as it were. Sincerity does not equal godliness. And so what this text tells us, it shows us that our religion, the religion of Christianity, must be regally regulated. That our religion is regally regulated. Now we hear that word religion, and the, the word religion has kind of fallen on hard times today, hasn't it? Where we don't like to use that term religion when we're uh, talking about Christianity. And so there's this phrase that's become more popular, that Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship. It's a very popular phrase, and it's a good phrase. Because when we think about Christianity, yes, it is a relationship. We do have a relationship with our God, who is a personal God. Our God calls us that he is our God and that we are his people. Our God has given us his word. He's spoken to us. Our God has taken on flesh and dwelt among us in the person of Jesus Christ. Our God has borne the sins of us on the cross for us. Our God has sent the Holy Spirit to us. Our God is a personal God, and we do have a relationship with him. But Christianity is also a religion. And we see, again, in this text that our religion must be regally regulated. And we'll see that by first looking at the story of Judges 17. Then we'll look at the sin of Judges 17, followed then by the significance of Judges 17. So the story, the sin, and the significance. Well, first, let's look at the story, and I've just read it for you. 
What's interesting about this particular text is it doesn't start off like every other narrative in the book of Judges. After uh, Joshua and that generation of uh, the Israelites had passed on, had died, generally when we get to a new narrative in the book of Judges, something along the lines of, and the people of God did what was evil in his sight, or the Philistines or or some other uh, nation surrounding them was persecuting them. And so the text will say something like, and Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and so they called out to the Lord and they repented, and the Lord raises up a judge. But we don't get that here in this text. We're kind of focusing in on one particular family in uh, Israel. We're not focusing on a whole tribe. Uh, We're not focusing on clans. We're focusing on one family, and that is the family of Micah. And we're kind of brought into this story mid-scene. There are things that are going on that the uh, author does not give us all the details about what is taking place, but we're able to read in between the lines for things that are taking place in this chapter. Evidently, there's this man, Micah. He finds 1,100 pieces of silver that don't belong to him, and he takes them for himself. And we're brought into the story as his mother has apparently cursed whoever has taken her money. And Micah hears this curse, and perhaps he's, he's somewhat fearful of, of this curse from his mother. Perhaps he's, he's burdened with some type of worldly guilt. And so we're brought into this narrative with Micah going to his mother and saying, you know that 1,100 pieces of silver that you lost? I found it. Where? It was in my drawer. Because I took it. But I'm giving it back to you. So he gives this money back to his mother. His mother who had just cursed whoever took the money then changes chorus and she says, Blessed be my son by the Lord who took the 1,100 pieces of silver. So it starts off as a curse. She then changes her tune and blesses her son or or speaks in, in such a way. And she says, Micah, the reason that I was so upset, why I was so distraught about losing all of that silver was because I wanted to dedicate it to the Lord. I wanted to dedicate it to Yahweh. And so what she does is she takes not 1,100 pieces of silver, but a small fraction of that, 200 pieces of silver, and she brings it to the silversmith who has a carved image and a metal image made. This is not two separate items here. It sounds like two separate items, but really what you would do is you would take a block of wood and you would carve it into whatever image you wanted it to look like. Then you would bring it to the silversmith and he would melt down that silver and he would coat that block of wood. And so you would have this metal image. You would have something that looks ornate, that looks shiny, that looks beautiful on the outside. But on the inside, it's just a simple worthless piece of wood. And what we have here is Micah is essentially creating his own religion. That Micah is falling into idolatry. This is what an idol is, isn't it? Attractive on the outside, but empty and hollow on the inside. And so he goes and he has household gods made. He has an ephod made. He ordains one of his sons to become one of his priests. And then we get in verse 6, there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. When we think of the book of Judges, generally this phrase is what we think of because it pops up multiple times throughout the book. Now we're going to wait and and not talk about this text so much in this section, but we'll get there when we get to the significance portion. And so the scene shifts. We get Micah and his household. We get him bringing back the money to his mother. We get him creating his own religion. End scene. A new scene begins. 
where now we're introduced to this young man of Bethlehem, this unnamed Levite. And this unnamed Levite, he is from the region of Judah and Bethlehem, and he's sojourning, he's traveling, and he finds himself somehow on the footsteps or in the area of Micah. He and Micah meet. And Micah asks what this young man is doing, and he says, well, I am looking for a place. That is, he's looking for some place to serve. You might say that he is candidating, if you want to speak anachronistically. And so Micah says, well, hey, you're here. I've got a great deal for you. Why don't you come and be my priest? I will call you Father. I'll buy you a new suit of clothes every year. I'll give you ten shekels of silver every year. I'll cover all your living expenses. All you've got to do is just be my own personal Levite. It's too much for this young man to pass up. So he says, yes. And of course, we read, again, like Micah's mother curses Micah, but then blesses him. Micah says, I'm going to call you, this unnamed Levite, a father. And yet, the text tells us he becomes like one of his sons. So again, we get this topsy-turvy thing taking place in this passage. And so Micah now, in verse 13, he's questioning whether everything that he has done is right. Now we know that he's got to be questioning that, because look at how verse 13 reads. Then Micah said, Now I know that the Lord will prosper me. All the things that he has done before, all the, the, the idols that he's made, ordaining his own son, setting up his own religion, he's not so sure that what he is doing is right. But now that he has a Levite as a priest, now he knows that the Lord must be blessing him and his actions. But of course we know that this is not true. That the Lord is not blessing Micah and his self-made religion with his own personal Levite. That's the story of Judges 17. Let's transition now and look at the sin of Judges 17. But before we really get into the specifics of the sin, and it's very apparent, it's right on the surface. Many of you have already come up with, I'm sure, at least 10 different ways that, that Micah has sinned against the Lord. It's worth noting what the name Micah means. You know, many of us, when we name our children, we like to name them with names that have good character qualities or, or significance to them, and we hope that the Lord will bless our children and that they'll live up to that name. You think of some names that, name, that uh, mean noble or mighty, or the Puritans would name their children after different character qualities. I named my son Desmond, my firstborn. And if you look up what the name Desmond means... It means north of Winchester. There's no significance to that. So we don't all name our children with, with this in mind, but, but it's important to look at what Micah's name means. Because Micah's name means who is like Yahweh. Micaiah. Who is like Yahweh. And Micah, in his actions, is saying that he is like Yahweh. Really, his name is supposed to remind him that he is not, that you are not, that none of us are like our Lord, and yet Micah thinks that he is. And what's significant is, it doesn't pop up in our English renderings, but Micaiah, that's how we're first introduced to him. But then, later, in verse 5, in the man Micah, the Yahweh is, is dropped off. And so we have Micah casting off his name and saying that he is like Yahweh. 
And so we already start to see just the arrogance of this man, thinking that he is like the Lord, that he has the prerogative to be able to set up his own religion. But just working through the passage, we see that Micah is a man who is covetous by nature. We see him want the silver and steal the silver. He's a thief. We see dishonest practices, even when he returns the money to his mother and they only dedicate, dedicate a small fraction of the money to the Lord. And it reminds you of Acts 5, doesn't it, with Ananias and Sapphira. And you remember the story where the New Testament church is, is just forming and this man, Barnabas, who's called a son of encouragement, he sells a field, his own field, and he takes all the proceeds of that money to give to the church. And this couple, Ananias and Sapphira, you remember that they see that, and they see how Barnabas was treated, and they think to themselves, we want to be like that. So they sell their field, and they only give a small portion to the Lord. That's their prerogative. They could have done that, but they lied about it, and they said this was the whole entire portion, all the money that we received. And you remember what Peter says, you're lying to the Holy Spirit. You're lying to God. And the Lord strikes both of them down. And the Lord in His providence was more merciful to the New Testament church then than the Old Testament church here. Because the Lord causes this idolatrous practice to be stamped out immediately so that the New Testament church can flourish. And yet we see many consequences take place because of this idolatry of Micah. Well, of course, we read that he made a carved image And children, when you think of the term carved image, what do you think of? You think of the golden calf, don't you? When the people of Israel were impatient with Moses, they were impatient with God, and so they had this carved image made, and they were practicing idolatry themselves. You see all uh, the Ten Commandments really violated in here, but particularly we see the first commandment, worshiping someone other than God, something other than God. And the second commandment, Worshiping in a way that God has not prescribed. So the first commandment tells us who we are to worship, and the second commandment of how we are to worship. And we see this man, Micah, violating both of those. We also see him then, after he started to create his own religion, he takes it upon himself to ordain his own priests. We read that he ordains his own son. There are multiple issues with this. When you look at Leviticus 8, we see how the Lord has commanded ordination to take place. It was only to be the Levites, and it was only to be by the high priest. And you read in that text over and over and over again that Moses did as the Lord commanded, and yet we see Micah doing as Micah wants. And so he ordains his own son, who is neither a Levite himself, and Micah does not have the authority to be able to do this. He makes an ephod, and likely he's the one wearing it. This is what the high priest wore. But then we also see this unnamed Levite enter into the picture. And we're not told much about him. Not a lot of details are given. We're given kind of where he was, his location, where he came from. And we're given something about his age. But it says that there was a young man in Bethlehem. Now, some of your translations might say a lad. Um, Likely, he he was in his uh, teenage years. And the reason that we're told his age... If you look at Numbers 4, verses 1 through 3, this is what the text says. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, 
Take a census of the Kohathite branch of the Levites by their clans and families. Count all the men from 30 to 50 years of age who come to serve in the work at the tent of the meeting. So not only was it simply the Levites who were to be the priests, but it's even narrowed down into a, a certain uh, clan of the Levites, and it's also narrowed down into a specific age. It's only from the age of 30 to 50 that the Levites could serve as a priest, and yet we have this young man here uh, being ordained, again, by this man, Micah. So there are multiple sins that we see. We see this in a pragmatism, particularly in verse 13, as I mentioned. Now that I have a Levite, things must be working. The Lord must be blessing my work. But we really see a great sin of syncretism in this passage. And syncretism is this idea of two things becoming one. If you've ever taken uh, your children out to eat or you've watched a kid go to uh, get his own drink at a fountain like McDonald's or something, what do they do? They take their cup and they, they fill it up with one drink halfway, and they stop, and they move it and fill it up with another drink halfway, and they stop, and they're mixing these two different sodas. How that can possibly happen is disgusting, and yet they do it. <laughs> and that's the idea of syncretism, taking two separate things and trying to make them one, and that's what Micah is doing. He's trying to take the religion of Yahweh and put it together with the pagan religions around him. Well, that's a sin of Judges 17. Let's then look at the significance to this chapter, to uh, this story. Before we really get into all the nitty-gritty of the significance uh, of Judges 17, I want to talk about uh, the timeline that this story takes place chronologically in the period of the Judges because if we're just reading the, the book, chapter 1 through chapter 21, Judges 17 falls on the end, or towards the end of the book, and so naturally we would think that this takes place towards the end of the period of the book of Judges. But it actually takes place right at the very beginning of the period of the book of Judges. Now why do we think that? Why do we say that? Well, remember this unnamed Levite. We're not given his name in Judges 17, but if you continue to read, we are given his name. Judges 18 follows. The Danites come and they end up uh, wanting to steal Micah's idol and they want to get this unnamed Levite to become their own priest. And so they come and they, they steal this carved image and they talk to this unnamed Levite and they say, is it better for you to be the Levite of one particular man or to be a Levite of a whole entire tribe? And so this priest for hire leaves Micah and he joins the Danites but look at chapter 18, verse 30. We get a reference to this Levite. And the people of Dan set up a carved image for themselves, that is the image of Micah. And Jonathan, the son of Gerashim, son of Moses, and his sons were priests to the tribe of the Danites until the day of the captivity of the land. Jonathan, the son of Gerashim, the son of who? Of Moses. Now, depending on your translations, some will say Moash, but then you'll have a footnote that says, well, it's actually Moses, but maybe the translators felt uncomfortable with naming Moses, having such an egregious, uh, wicked grandson. But this is only a few generations out from the Exodus. You remember where God saves his people, saves us from the bondage of slavery? He brings first generation Israel out 
of bondage out of Egypt into the wilderness to take them to the promised land. And you remember that in their rebellion and in their sin, the Lord did not bless them and allow them to see the promised land. And so a second generation then was raised up, the greatest generation in all of Israel. And the Lord then sends them to conquer the promised land, led by Joshua. And then we read in chapter 2. Let's go there for just a moment. Judges chapter 2. Looking at verse 10, talking about uh, the death of Joshua, the death of second generation Israel who has gone out and conquered the promised land. And it says, And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And there arose a new generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And so you have this new generation Israel who did not know the work of the Lord, who did not recognize the Lord as their king. And we have them fall into sin. So we have Moses, his grandson, doing this wicked thing as a Levite, as a priest for hire. But if you continue to read the book of Judges and you go into chapter 19, we read about some egregious sin that takes place where God's people essentially become worse than Sodom and Gomorrah. And then you keep reading and a civil war has broken out among the people of Israel with Benjamin against everybody else. Benjamin is in the wrong. And we read about all of Israel coming against this tribe. And who are they led by? Who is one of the men who is leading Israel against these uh, people, the Benjaminites? Well, if you look at chapter 20, verse 28, And Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, ministered before it in those days, saying, Shall we go out into battle once more against our brothers, the people of Benjamin, or shall we cease? So we have Moses' grandson, acting in great wickedness. We have Aaron's grandson leading the people uh, in in righteousness. So narratively, yes, this book, or this story rather, takes place towards the end of the book. And the reason for that is the author is trying to show us the egregious nature of the sin of Israel. Because you read the book of Judges and you know there's this cyclical decline. And so narratively, it culminates in this rebellion in this wickedness in this civil war because the people of God had become like Sodom and Gomorrah and yet chronologically it takes place right at the beginning of the period of the book of Judges now I mentioned that we would look at verse 6 and let's do that now verse 6 in those days there was no king in Israel everyone did what was right in his own eyes And as I mentioned earlier, this is generally what we think of when we think of the book of Judges. It takes place, and it's it's referenced multiple times. But you know where this phrase first pops up in the book of Judges? It doesn't pop up in chapter 1, or chapter 5, or chapter 10, or chapter 14, but it pops up here in chapter 17. Now, why is that? Why does it pop up here? It's because the people of God are in rebellion and in idolatry. Immediately following the destroying how God wants to be worshipped, immediately doing things that we ought not to do, immediately introducing idolatry into Christianity, we get this phrase, there is no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Because we have violated what God has called us to do, how God has called us to worship. 
Now, I mentioned earlier that many will look at these uh, few chapters and they'll say that this is simply an appendix to the book of Judges. But it's not. Because this appendix, as it were, gives us the whole purpose of the book of Judges. There was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. This is how the book ends. But what follows after it? Looking in your English Bibles, at least, the book of Ruth follows immediately after the book of Judges. And how does the book of Ruth end? You remember it's a genealogy leading up to this man, Jesse. And who is Jesse but the father of David? Who is David but the king of Israel? And who is David but a type of Christ? Jesus being the son of David, the true king of Israel, the one who does regally regulate his religion. This text, this book, is pointing us to our king that we must submit to him. And we're reminded that our king Jesus bestows saving grace upon us, his people, that our king Jesus restrains and overcomes our enemies, that our king Jesus gives us laws and ordinances and officers, and our king Jesus supports us under our temptations and sufferings. We must recognize our king Jesus. Now, when we look at this text and we see Micah and we see others fall into the sin of syncretism, the sin of idolatry, it can be very easy for us to kind of sit back in our Reformed Presbyterian chairs and think that we would never fall into such an egregious, wicked sin as that, that we can never be guilty of syncretism. You can look around and you can say, we have these chairs. Yes, they're soft, but they're not elaborate. They're not ornate. We don't have loud music. We don't have big screen. Well, I guess we have the screen here. But that's okay. We don't have fog machines or any other kind of thing like that. And we can look at other churches and we can say, look how they're falling to syncretism. But no, not us. I will say, hold on. Not so fast. Let's examine our hearts a little bit before we say such a proud and arrogant thing. Let's remember our context, our cultural context. We are the Reformed Presbyterian Church of North America. This is a great country. We're all blessed to live in this country. But we can be guilty of syncretism, of blending Christianity with Americanism. I'm not speaking out against our nation. Let me be very clear. I'm very thankful to live here. I'm very thankful that the Lord has placed us in this country when he has. But when you think about America, what's one of the things that makes us distinct? What's one of the things that you constantly hear over and over again? That we are people who pick ourselves up by our own bootstraps. That we are people, we are individuals. And we tend to focus on our individualism to the point where we have this hyper-individualism. And one sociologist, a Christian sociologist, says this, Individualism is the belief that the good society is one in which individuals are left free to pursue their private satisfactions independently of others, a pattern of thinking that emphasizes individual achievement and self-fulfillment. And of course, we are individuals. We are body and we are soul. We are distinct from others. But the problem is when we start to uh, just hyper-focus on our individualism, 
to the point where we reject the corporate church, the point where we reject others. Now, how, how might we be guilty of falling into syncretism, falling into this idea of hyper-individualism? Well, there are three uh, ways that, that I see, that I myself struggle with, and I'm, I'm sure and I trust that many of you might struggle with uh, the same thing. The first is this, falling into syncretism of hyper-individualism, is that we're tempted to treat our faith like a private matter. We're tempted to treat our faith like a private matter, and this is what we're told by the culture around us. We're told that you keep your religion just to yourself. You relegate it to the pews of your church. Your Jesus does not belong in economics. Your Jesus does not belong in politics. Your Jesus does not belong in ethics. And we can be tempted to believe that or by fear practice that. But that ought not to be so. And I'm anticipating with great excitement my ordination day. And on that day I will be taking a vow, vow three, and it says this. Do you believe that it is the duty of Christians to profess publicly the content of the faith as it applies to the particular needs of each age and situation? And that such public profession, otherwise known as coveting, covenanting, <laughs> should be made formally by the churches and other institutions, as well as informally by each believer according to his ability. And this is something that, yes, ordained officers take. It's not something that's part of our membership vows, and yet it comes from a biblical principle. And you remember Jesus talking in Matthew 5 when he says that you, you are salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. But our faith is not a private matter. It's something that we are to uh, illuminate to the world around us. Micah isolated his faith to his own household, and yet we must bear public testimony to our king, to those around us. This is a great privilege that we, Second RP, have the uh, ability to do. The first, or the second way, then, that we might fall into syncretism is that we can have a consumeristic view of worship. And again, we'll scratch our heads at this because we sing psalms a cappella. How can we possibly have a consumeristic view of worship? But understand that worship is not simply singing. It's everything that we're doing. It's gathering together on the Lord's Day. It is singing. It's praying. It's preaching. It's hearing the word preached. And sometimes we can come into church we can have an attitude that says, I don't like that song, that psalm. We did not sing it well. We should have sung it better. I don't like how this person presides or that person presides. And we can think it's all about us. But we have to remember, it's not about us. It's about the Lord. So even if we do struggle through singing psalms sometimes, even if uh, whoever is presiding maybe doesn't do as well as we would hope, or even if the sermon itself is not up to snuff, we must realize that it is for God's glory, not for our uh, consumption. 
We are called to participate in the worship. Now, if I can, just as a way of application to us today in the 21st century church, if you look at this text, you'll see a number of times, at least three, that the text says that Micah was at home, that Micah worships at home. And remember where he is. He's in Ephraim. Now, do you remember where uh, the tent of meeting was at this point? Where God's people were to gather for worship? It was in Shiloh. Where is Shiloh? In Ephraim. It was a hop, skip, and away from Micah to simply go there and worship in the way that the Lord is calling us to worship him, calling Micah to worship him. And yet he relegates his worship to his home. Two years ago, the whole world changed. COVID hit, the pandemic spread, and we, by necessity, were relegated to our own homes. And we could not gather for safety's sake. If you talk to pastors, you talk to your elders and pastor here, I'm sure they'll tell you that many people have not returned. Many people have started to take uh, advantage of the live stream in ways that it was never meant to be taken advantage of. And we ourselves can be guilty of that as well. The live stream is a good thing. It's a blessing. I've used it many times when my kids are sick or I've been sick. In fact, my kids aren't feeling well. My wife is utilizing it right now. So it's a good thing. But a good thing can be abused. And we can start to treat the live stream as an excuse to not come to worship, to not gather with God's people. We can start to say, well, you know, I, I'm tired. I overslept. It's okay. I'll just stay home. Or we can say, well, I've got maybe a runny nose. It's allergies, but we blame it on a cold. And so we say we don't have to come to worship. Or there's many other ways that we can make the live stream an excuse to not gather with God's people. To focus on our individualism as opposed to gathering with the corporate body. So the live stream is a blessing, and it ought to be used in an appropriate way. But we must be careful that we don't use it to consume worship and replace our corporate worship. So that's the second way. And finally, the third way. How might we particularly, as the American church in the 21st century, be guilty of syncretism. Arguably, this, this may be one of the most egregious ways. We can fall into the temptation of treating our justification as something we must add and apply effort to. And you remember what justification is. One of the core doctrines of the faith, that it is an act of God's free grace, where he pardons us of our sins, accepts us as righteous, only for the righteousness of Christ that is imputed to us, and we receive it through faith alone. But sometimes, I trust I'm not alone in this. Sometimes when we examine ourselves, we look at our lives, we see the sin that remains in us, and we think, I just, I, I'm not there. And we struggle with assurance. And so we think, well, if I just do more, if I try harder, maybe, just maybe, I'll be assured. And it's not necessarily a bad thing, but that's not the first thing that we should focus on. I uh, recently took my son uh, hiking 
we went camping for his sixth birthday and you know you climb up hills sometimes you hike up hills or hike up mountains when you hike up a, a certain elevation you're anticipating you're expecting to see a glorious view and you look at that view and you enjoy it and as you're scanning the landscape you see a tree or a bench and some individual has just taken upon themselves to carve their name into a bench or a tree, and they kind of ruin the whole aesthetic. But they're carving their name to the tree or to the bench so that everybody knows Bernard was here. Thank you. But sometimes we, we can have the same mentality as we look at the mountain of righteousness, and we want so desperately for our name to be carved up there. And so we try and we try to hike up this mountain of righteousness. And you can't do it. You can't do it. And I'm reminded of Sisyphus. You remember Sisyphus from Greek mythology, where his job, his task, was to take this great boulder and to roll this boulder up this mountain. And he would strive, he would toil, and he would slowly make progress step after step after step. But then when he would reach the plateau of the mountain, he would trip. And the weight of that boulder would crush him and fall down to the foot of the mountain. And he had to do that over and over and over again. And this is something that we ourselves can feel. That we think we're there and then we trip and we fall. And we can't do it. I've got good news for you. You're right. You cannot do it. But you know who can? Our King. Our King Jesus can do it. Our King Jesus, through his active obedience, he takes that boulder, he rolls it up that mountain, he places it on top of the mountain, and he carves your name into that boulder. You who are united with Christ, your name is carved there. But it's not so much simply just a boulder. Your name, for those who are united in Christ, your name is in the Lamb's book of life. A book which pages that cannot tear, words that do not fade, ink that does not smear. Your name is there because of our King Jesus. We must be careful that we do not fall into the sin of syncretism. We must remind ourselves who our Lord is, who our Savior is, and who we are in light of him. And our King Jesus graciously, lovingly, blessedly regulates his religion. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you that we are not our own, that you have purchased us with a price that we are your people, your corporate body. Lord, we thank you that you are the one who does regally regulate your religion. You are the one who blesses us with the means uh, to worship you. Lord, we pray that your blessing uh, would continue upon this worship service this morning. Amen.